Hi, I'm Lydia McGrew and welcome back to the Lydia McGrew YouTube channel. Today I'm going to talk about evaluating highly specific claims about authorial intentions and what we might think of as hidden authorial meanings. And I'll apply that specifically to the Gospels. It's a kind of rule of thumb in epistemology that the more specific a claim is, the higher its evidential demands. So I'll give you a sort of homely example that isn't even as improbable as uh, some of the things I will be talking about as I go on. And this example would be, suppose I were to say to you, at 10 o'clock this morning, a man walked past in front of my house wearing a green camo jacket and he had a collie and a boxer dog on a leash, on, on two leashes, and he had a blue baseball cap on. Now you might say to me, oh, is that one of your neighbors? Is that someone you've seen walk by before? Or, or, or oh, did you see him? And how would you feel if I said, no, I didn't see him. No, I've never seen anyone meeting that description in my neighborhood. And no, that doesn't uh, fit the description of any of my neighbors. Uh, I just thought it might have happened. And so I'm going to say it happened. That would be very strange, wouldn't it? Because that's a highly specific claim. I've described his clothes, his dogs, and the time when he came by. I wouldn't do that. And you probably wouldn't do that either. Even though as a type of thing, it's not all that implausible. If you did have my testimony that it had happened um, and I was sincere about it, and I didn't say such a weird thing about where the idea came from, you would presumably believe me. You would probably think I had seen it myself or someone had mentioned it to me. But it's interesting that when it comes to documents that we're spending a lot of time on, like the Gospels, there is such an assumption there that scholars often bring that these are highly literary documents that people give a lot of credence to views of what they're doing based solely on the fact that someone dreamed the idea up. Okay, so um, if somebody dreams up the idea that maybe John invented the place where John the Baptist said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, and that it never happened, and that he just dreamed it up because he was quote-unquote transferring it from the uh, voice of the narrator, which is where that verse is quoted in the book of Mark, and putting it into the mouth of John the Baptist, like that's all it takes. And then we say, it's impossible to know. I have no idea whether that really happened. And it's such a mundane thing. And John the Evangelist appears to be attesting that it actually happened. Why do we not take that at face value? Apparently just because some scholar fought up the idea that he made it up. So there's a complete failure to meet even a minimal burden of proof. I have a method that I want to propose for approaching such claims. And particularly here, I'm thinking of claims of hidden authorial purposes that are contrary to the prima facie assertion of the text, or maybe are built on as an added layer on top of the prima facie assertion of the text. So this doesn't only apply to claims of fictionalization, though those are the ones that interest me more. Maybe in a later video, I'll do it for a claim that seems to me unjustified, even though it's not a fictionalization claim, but it's just overly complex. 
some years ago I did a webinar called Six Bad Habits of New Testament Scholars and How to Avoid Them. And I can't remember whether I included in that webinar the habit of preferring complex theories over simple theories or accepting theories without demanding the fulfillment of a decent burden of proof. But those go together and definitely constitute a very bad habit of New Testament scholars. So I want to illustrate this. Of course, I already did illustrate it a bit with the example of John uh, and whether John said he was the voice of one crying in the wilderness. But I'm going to illustrate it in a little more detail with the theory that uh, John the Evangelist moved the temple cleansing. Now, I will try to remember to put below the list, uh, the playlist that I've made. I have a whole playlist on the arguments that John moved the temple cleansing. And I hope you'll watch that. I'm going to try not to repeat that here. What I want to do today is use it as an illustration of a complex authorial intention claim that gets accepted without recognizing just how complex it really is and therefore without bringing enough evidence to support it. And the method I use here is what I call breaking it down. Break it down, break it down, because so often these complicated claims of underlayers or overlayers of uh, intention, authorial intention, are really uh, a conjunction of multiple different claims. And you need evidence for all of them because one doesn't just follow from the other one, and that evidence is often not forthcoming. In my books, I talk about this and I call it giving evidential force to the scholar's ingenuity. So the mere fact that the person has enough ingenuity to dream it up is taken to mean that now this is on, on the table for serious consideration, as if I did that about the man walking past my house. Except in that case, we would realize that the mere fact that I dreamed that up didn't give it any force. I think this arises from the fact that scholars talk and act among themselves as though it's already been established that the evangelists did not have a primarily testimonial motive um, and that they are doing these highly complicated literary things and highly complicated hidden symbolic things. And now we just have to figure out what they're doing. Okay, but that has by no means been established. So here's the claim, of course, if you're familiar with it. In the Gospel of John, it records the temple cleansing as occurring early in Jesus' ministry, and the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke record a temple cleansing that occurs at the end of Jesus' ministry. On the face of it, this seems to indicate, if you put them together, that he did this twice. He engaged in this kind of protest in the temple on two different occasions. That theory is accepted by a number of scholars, um, including, you know, credentialed scholars and so forth, but it's not the most common view. The most common view uh, among more liberal scholars and even, unfortunately, some evangelicals is that John moved it. And I'll talk a little bit more in a second about what it means that John moved it. I have a whole video on this as well in my playlist. And the idea is that he did this for some kind of literary reason. I'm going to use as my illustration of a reason, they give different reasons, but I'm going to use as an illustration of my reason today, one from Craig Keener, that Craig Keener in his commentary on John appears to endorse. 
And the reason is that uh, John the Evangelist wanted to symbolize the idea that Jesus' entire ministry was, symbolically speaking, one long Passion Week. Not literally, and there was a literal Passion Week, but that in a sense his whole ministry was within the Passion. It was one long Passion. Um, and that he moved the temple cleansing for that reason. So now I'm going to illustrate what I mean by breaking it down. Okay, so we start with the claim. There was only one real time that Jesus cleansed the temple. Now that's by no means just known. But boy, oh boy, you know, you'll see it stated as if it's incontrovertible fact. So first claim, there was only one temple cleansing. Second, John the Evangelist knew that there was only one temple cleansing. Now, in this case, since I take it that John the Evangelist was a disciple of Jesus, I will grant that very probably if there was only one, he would have known. There are many other cases where there are claims of uh, alteration made where it's by no means as obvious that if this was uh, not correct, the author knew it. And I could give examples of those, but especially if the author would not have been present at the time, we need to ask separately why we are so sure that not only was this the way it really happened, but the author knew it was the way it really happened. Um, so under most cases, many cases, that's actually a separate question. All right, then the third proposition is John moved the temple cleansing. Let me be clear, the claim is that he moved it, what I call dischronologically. And what I mean by that is that he tried in his narrative to make it appear that it happened at a different time than the time when it really happened and when he knew that it really happened. Now, I, th I think John the Evangelist does make it look like it happened at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. I think that's because he did cleanse the temple at the beginning of his ministry. I think he cleansed it twice. Um, but the idea here is that he knew it didn't, and yet he wrote deliberately in such a way that it, in, in what you might call the narrative, the story that he's telling, it happens early, okay? Not just that he kind of told it out of order because that's when it occurred to him, but that he was trying to make it look like it happened early. All right. And fourthly, that he did this for some literary or theological symbolic reason. Okay. Now those are all different claims. In this particular case, I'm willing to grant that the second one that he knew when it happened uh, is is plausible and that if it did only happen at the end, he would have known. I think he would have remembered. That's not always. Those are sometimes very separate. But um, this, this deliberate moving and then for a symbolic reason. After all, if he deliberately moved it, he, he had to have some reason, right? So, okay. But now, um, we're not done yet with breaking it down because it's it's legitimate to say, well, why would he have done a thing like that? And then to use this to question the other claims. Like if you can't come up with a plausible motive for him to do it, that calls into, calls into question the very claim that he did do it. I think that's the case when it comes to uh, the suggestion that he invented John the Baptist saying, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. You would be astonished how often these scholars don't even bother to suggest a motive. 
It's just like, yeah, you know, I feel like it today. I think I'll make up something John the Baptist said that he didn't really say, you know? It's so arbitrary. And so sometimes I think scholars sort of uh, realize that, so then they come up with a, a suggested motive. In this case, the suggested motive is to uh, demonstrate or to show symbolically that um, the that the entirety of Jesus' ministry was in Passion Week. Another suggestion that has been made is that uh, John wanted, uh, John the Evangelist wanted to place greater emphasis on the raising of Lazarus as what kicked off Jesus' crucifixion, so he didn't want to have the raising of Lazarus uh, coming around the same time as Jesus uh, cleansing the temple, so that's why he moved the cleansing of the temple, was to sort of focus more attention on the raising of Lazarus as the real cause of Jesus' crucifixion. So he moved the cleansing of the temple to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So those are a couple different examples. But but we're not done. We're not done breaking it down. So let's, at this point, we have a fork, all right? Either the author expected a significant proportion of his readers or hearers to know what he had done, or he didn't expect that. So that's, it's just a fork. So let's talk first about if he didn't expect that. He didn't, he, he figured people would miss this, okay? Well, right away, we have a problem with honesty then. Because if he figured people would miss it, and he, he realized that it would not be picked up on by a significant proportion of his audience, then he must have known that he would confuse them. So now we're attributing what is in essence being deliberately misleading to the author. And I think we should question that and that that calls for some argument that, you know, that was the kind of author we had. Also, if he did it and didn't expect the vast majority of his readers to pick up on it, then what does it mean to say he was trying to symbolize this or, um, you know, for example, symbolize that Jesus' whole ministry was one long Passion Week. I guess it just means for his own private enjoyment, for his own private entertainment. Like, ah, I'm slyly doing this, you know. Maybe nobody will pick up on it, but I just think it's cool. So, like, in my own private mind, I know that this is what I was doing. So that becomes really weird. It's like a private game he's playing or something. All right. Suppose he did expect, suppose the claimant said he did expect a substantial percentage of his readers to pick up on this. Now that requires defense in and of itself. How were they supposed to pick up on this? And, you know, when Cater talks about it, he talks about the fact that the synoptic tradition was well known by the time that uh, John was written. That's not enough, though. That's not anywhere near enough. Um, you, the synoptic tradition could be well known where they they talk about a temple cleansing at the end of the ministry, and the people could have just said, oh, what do you know? Jesus also cleansed the temple at the beginning of his ministry. We learned something additional, right? Why not? Why should we take it that because the the uh, temple cleansing at the end was well known from the synoptics, that when John appears to report one at the beginning, his audience would immediately assume that uh, he moved it. And a lot of times when you have these scholars trying to say, oh, his alert readers would have noticed, what they're basically doing is just saying uh, the first century alert readers thought 
like a 20th or 21st century critical Bible scholar. And I think that's very, very anachronistic, very dubious, very questionable. Why not think that the readers would have thought there were two temple cleansings or would have debated the matter or would have been confused? But even more, if he's supposed to be conveying this symbolic meaning to them, why think that they would get that symbolic meaning? I mean, after all, the contemporary scholars are just sitting around going, oh, I think he did it for this symbolic reason. Oh, I think he did it for this symbolic reason. Oh, I think he did it for this other literary reason. And they have all these different, and there's nothing to choose between them. They're very, very conjectural, arbitrary, and subjective. They are, as uh, D.A. Carson sometimes refers to things, he uses the phrase, without objective control. So given that, why think that uh, the audience would pick up on this and be, in a sense, spiritually nourished by some theological meaning? And why think that John would think that they would get this and go, oh man, that's so deep. It's like Jesus' whole ministry was in Passion Week. This is just like one scholar's theory. There's That does not constitute a reason to think that John's audience understood it that way or that John expected his audience to understand it that way. So I've illustrated this here to illustrate the method of breaking it down. There's this claim and this claim and this claim and this claim. And what are your justifications? And at crucial moments, like John's alert readers would have picked up on this and would have understood it, that he moved it and they would have picked up on this meaning because of the passion associations of the temple class, you know, all of that. It's just assertion. It's nothing but assertion. Um, or there was only one temple cleansing. There they attempt a certain amount of argument, and I'm going to restrain myself and resist the temptation to discuss it and refer you to my other, um, my other videos. But you need to break it down, and you need to challenge things that are overly complex. As I said, this can, this can come up even <clears throat> when there's no claim of factual change. The claim of factual change does add another proposition to be justified. But even when it's just something like um, John deliberately arranges his gospel around seven signs, very specific number. All right, this is this is similar to the the blue baseball cap that the guy's wearing walking past the house. Your your mind should immediately say, really seven, seven signs exactly. And you find that when you go and you try to count, it, it's very easy to get like more than seven or fewer than seven. And it's so then that calls into question this idea that John deliberately again very very specific authorial intention claim. I actually was talking to uh, someone that I, I respect very much. I, I very much respect. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name him, and I don't think he'll take it wrong. Peter J. Williams, I like him a lot. I like his work a lot, but he's, he's more into these symbolic claims than I am. And he said something like, well, it's seven-ish signs. And I, I, I was like, but that calls the whole thing into question. What's with the ish? Okay. When you hear something and it's specific, you should ask what the justification is for it. And then if it has to be made more vague in order to hang on to it, then that kind of calls into question that it was being deliberately done that way at all. 
okay? Um, or similarly, I, I can remember first hearing the Gospels are Greco-Roman biographies, Greco-Roman bio. And I remember just the specificity of that. It rang a little bell in my mind, and I said, specifically? Greco-Roman biography? What does that mean? What all is involved in this assertion? Okay, and of course, as you know, if you followed my work, that's how I came to question this. Okay, that, that because it's too specific of a claim. And I then went and researched it and I have a whole section of the mirror or the mask on it. But what originally aroused my suspicions was the specificity of the claim, especially given that several of the authors were Jewish and not necessarily highly, highly educated Jews. So that's something that I want to recommend to you. When you hear a highly specific claim, especially a claim of factual change by the gospel authors, question it, break it down, and ask what the justification is for the different parts of it. This is important in all different areas of our life, but it's especially important with the things that matter most such as the truth or falsehood of the documents that constitute the foundation of the Christian faith. Thanks for watching. Please like and subscribe and invite other people to watch as well. I'm Lydia McGrew.